This morning, I want to pick up where we left off last week. Last week, we heard from the Bible that one of the main goals of the church is to so live that the wisdom of God is demonstrated to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. I emphasize that we are not only the light of the world, but we are also the light of the cosmos. It has a cosmic mission, this church of ours, and therefore all its activities, no matter how seemingly insignificant, take on tremendous proportions when they're viewed in relationship to that mission. The way, we said, that we demonstrate to the principalities and powers that God is wise is by simply being the church that Jesus Christ died to create. And now what I want to do this morning is come down into the more practical affairs of church life and ask, what is that church like? What does it look like, a church that can demonstrate to the principalities and powers and to the world that God is wise and glorious? Now, the first thing we need to do, I think, is try to get some biblical information about the definition of the church. So that's item number one on our agenda. The New Testament never uses the word church for a place or a building. It always uses the word church for a people, either the totality of believers or some local group of them. For example, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 Paul says that God raised Christ from the dead above all rule and authority and put all things under his feet, made him head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's the universal church, the total number of all believers that have ever lived, all those who orient themselves on Jesus Christ as their life and their authority. But the New Testament also uses the word church to refer to little groups of believers either in a particular city or in a particular house. For example, Acts 11.32 refers to the church in Jerusalem. 1 Corinthians 1.2 refers to the church which is at Corinth. 1 Thessalonians is addressed as the church of the Thessalonians. Or 1 Corinthians 16.19 says, The churches of Asia send greetings... Aquila and Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send greetings. Colossians 4.15, Paul sends greetings to Nympha and the church in her house. Or one more, Paul addresses his letter to Philemon and to the church in your house. So there seem to be at least three levels on which the local or the word church applies. The totality of believers who've ever lived who have Christ as their head and as the source of their life. And then secondly, groups of Christians that are thrown together because of their geographic togetherness in a city or groups of Christians who gather in one particular building, a house in that case. Those are the three dimensions in which the word church is applied in the New Testament. And those last two, I suppose, could be identical in a city where there are so few Christians they could all fit into one house. But in a large city like Jerusalem, where there were 3,000 Christians the day after Pentecost, house churches must have developed very quickly. Now, it seems to me that there are two possible ways that we can talk about the local church. We can ask ourselves, what is the minimum that it takes to make a group of people into a local church? 
Or we can talk about the maximum. That is, what is all that God is calling a local church to be? And I think both of those ways of talking about the church are important. Because the minimum is important. Because if we don't know what minimally makes a church, we might find ourselves settling down into some fellowship. And being content with that fellowship, which is in fact not a church. But the other side, the question of maximum is important because it belongs to saving faith, doesn't it? That we desire to be all God wants us to be. A Christian who makes it his goal to be minimum Christian is in trouble, I think. Saving faith longs to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. Now, we have minimum church at Bethlehem. No problem there. So I'm going to talk mainly this morning about maximum church. But I don't want to go over that minimum because, as I said, it does have an important role to play in our thinking. So let's talk for just a few minutes about minimum church. What does it take, minimally, to make a group of people into a local church? Here's my definition of a local church, and then I'll talk about each element in it. A local church is a group of baptized believers who gather regularly to worship God through Jesus Christ, to be exhorted by the Word of God, to celebrate the Lord's Supper, all under the guidance of duly appointed leaders. Now, there are seven elements to that definition, each I believe, essential to being a local church. And I'll break them down. One, local church must be made up of people who give evidence of being Christians. And that seems obvious to us, but it's not the case in every society. I get that from the fact that the New Testament throughout makes it clear that we are adopted into God's family and therefore into the local expressions of that family through faith. That's a uniform teaching. Second, the people must be baptized. Jesus said at the end of his life that the way you make disciples, and disciples are what are in the church, is by baptizing and teaching them everything that I've taught you. That was the uniform practice throughout the New Testament. Three, there must be regular assembling. A group of people who get together once a year ought not to call themselves a local church because there are essential activities in the church which lose their meaning if they are not done corporately rather than being done individually separated from each other. And therefore, Ephesians, Hebrews 10.25 says, don't neglect the assembling of yourselves together. Fourth, among these meetings now that are happening regularly, there must be worship going on. That simply follows from the fact that we put ultimate value on Jesus Christ. Therefore, it would contradict the nature of our whole commitment if worship were not an integral part of our life together. Fifth, there must be exhortation from the word of God in these gatherings. First Peter says that we were born anew through the living and abiding word of God. Our life comes from the word. And then we go on and preserve that life not by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. And so I think God has appointed that in the local church there are shepherds who feed the people, the sheep, and that the local church is the appointed place where that feeding takes place. Sixth, not only must there be worship and exhortation from the word, but there must be the celebration of the Lord's Supper in those meetings. 
We're commanded by Jesus, do this in remembrance of me. Some churches may think it incidental to drop that out gradually. There are some churches, so-called, who don't practice the ordinances at all. I think what a church is going to find, though that may seem inconsequential at first, is that by that amputation, they will bleed to death. And number seven, finally, all of this should take place under the guidance of duly appointed leadership. Paul appointed elders in every church, Acts 14.23 says. In 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1, he gives instructions to the bishops and to the deacons. And he says in Ephesians 4 that Christ has given to the church pastor teachers and many other gifted sorts. Now, there have always been disagreements in the church what to call these leaders and how to organize them. That doesn't matter. What matters is in order to be a church, they must be there in some form or the other. A leaderless group of people ought not to call itself a local church in the New Testament sense. So those are the seven things I think are essential, minimum, to make local church. A local church is a group of baptized believers who assemble themselves regularly for worshiping God through Jesus Christ, being exhorted by the word, celebrating the Lord's Supper, all under the guidance of duly appointed leadership. And I think that's valuable to know because it will help us determine what sorts of groups are church and what sorts of groups aren't church. For example, inner varsity chapters, campus crusade meetings, Bible study fellowship, youth for Christ clubs are not church. They are not the local church. And all the leaders of those that I've ever met freely admit that and aren't in any way trying to usurp the role of the local church. But it means that our young people and we ourselves must guard ourselves against thinking that to settle into one of those fruitful fellowships is all we should have. It isn't, according to the New Testament, as I understand it. Those para-church groups, as we call them, are tremendously valuable tremendously valuable as they work in concert and harmony with the local church. And the people I know in all those groups are eager to be partners with us in the local sphere. But now here we are at Bethlehem Baptist Church. We are minimum church. There is no problem there. So the question that I raise isn't that. It's now what? Now that we have minimum church, where do we go from here? I think the Lord calls us to Be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. He calls us to maximum church, not minimum church. And so we shouldn't stop with the question, what makes a local church? We should go on to the question, what makes a maximum local church? That's what we ought to be asking ourselves here at Bethlehem. Maximum local church means a church which maximally reaches the goals that God has set for the church, the local church. Now... That means that we should be asking, what are we doing or what should we be doing so that the world and the cosmos will look on and say, their God is wise and glorious and worthy of our worship? That's the key question for minimum church, moving to maximum church. What sorts of things ought we to be engaged in so that people will look upon us and say, their God is real? And he is worthy of worship. Now, the answer I want to give in the rest of these minutes we have together this morning is the one I think the New Testament gives most often. But it's one that in my own background received far less emphasis 
then it should have if it was going to be proportional to the biblical emphasis. I don't know whether that's the case in your experience or not. You can answer that for yourself. I think, by and large, in the evangelical church, this emphasis has only in the past decade been resurrected after almost a century of neglect. And there are theological and personal reasons for that, which we won't go into, but many of you would know those if you just stopped to reflect for a moment. The most common New Testament answer to the question, what makes Maximum Church, is good deeds. Doing good for other people. The question now, remember, is not what is the ultimate goal of the church. That was last week. The ultimate goal of the church is so to live that the principalities and powers and all the world will look at us and give glory to God. That's the ultimate goal of the church. Our job is so to live that people will look at us and say, God is real. Look. But now the question is, how then shall we live, as Francis Schaeffer labeled it? And the answer that the New Testament gives again and again and again is do good deeds. Let's look at some texts. Jesus said, for example, in Matthew 5:16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. Ask yourself this question. Are there any deeds that you have planned into your life which it would be reasonable for people outside to look at and conclude that your God is glorious, powerful, and wise? Or are our lives pretty much made up only of the sorts of activities which come from power resident in human nature and would lead no one to conclude that there is a power at work in us who is glorious and divine? That is a fairly indicting question, isn't it? This to me. What sorts of Deeds do I have planned into my life which would make it reasonable for somebody to look at me and say, there must be a God. And he's glorious and worthy of my praise. According to Jesus, the good deeds of his disciples are the window through which this world can see the glory of God. That's what that verse says very plainly. Therefore, If maximum church means maximum glory for God, and if God receives glory through maximum good deeds, then maximum church means maximum good deeds. Now, a lot of other texts in the New Testament confirm this very, very clearly. Ephesians 2.10. You've all memorized this, probably. We have been created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works or for good deeds. God made us for good deeds, that verse says. We exist as Christians for good deeds. If you don't do them, you simply aren't doing what you were created to do. Now, that doesn't conflict with the first chapter of Ephesians, which says we exist to the praise of God's glory. Verse 12 and 14 of chapter 1. And the reason it doesn't conflict is because Jesus has taught us that the way God gets glory is through the good deeds of his disciples. So to say that we exist for good deeds, we exist for the glory of God, are one and the same thing, according to Matthew 5, 16. They will see our good deeds and give glory to God. 
Titus 2.14, Paul teaches this in that verse. Jesus Christ gave himself to redeem us from all iniquity and to purify for himself a people of his own who are zealous for good deeds. Have you ever stopped to say it just like this? Jesus Christ died so that you would be zealous for good deeds. That's just as plain as could be in that verse. He died to make us zealous for good deeds. Hebrews 12:2 says that Jesus died. He was able to endure the cross for the joy that was set before him. That is, when he was in Gethsemane there, just before Good Friday, struggling to make it through, he set his eyes on the glory and the joy that would come because of what he was doing. And you know what one aspect of that joy is today for Jesus? Looking down on Bethlehem Baptist Church and seeing a church zealous for good deeds. Because he died so that we'd be zealous for good deeds. When a local church is busy thinking up creative ways to do good to other people, Jesus has not died in vain. And the principalities and powers are very put out with our wisdom or our reliance on God's. Churches are dying in our land because they are not doing anything that the world should look at and say, look, look what spirit they do those deeds with and look how much love they have. There must be a power behind that activity. So many churches have simply forgotten why they are. And their life just goes on week after week, seemingly like a club with a religious veneer. But their life is just ebbing away because they are not so living so that anybody is looking at them and saying, look at their good deeds. My, their God must be very faithful to them. Now, I don't think Bethlehem is in that category. It seems to me that this church really does have a heart for good deeds, good deeds that bring glory to God. What we need at Bethlehem is not to turn around, go another direction, but to just make on in the direction that we're going towards maximum good deeds. I've been thinking a lot lately about the future of this church. I walk back and forth between my house and the church here and Usually, during those eight minutes or so that it takes me, I think about the church. I'll look around. I think about the future. I think about what it'll be like to be the pastor of this church in ten years. When the dome is just old hat and everything is settled down. And we've got not just one IDS tower, but two, maybe three skyscrapers like that. And when the suburbs have light rail transit connecting the hub. This Tuesday night at the Minneapolis Public Library, by the way, there's a hearing on that if you want to put in some good words for light rail transit. Um, when dozens of young families maybe have moved into the city instead of away from the city in order to be near work and near church and to minister to the needs around here. I think about all those things and I say to myself, I want to be a great church in 10 years. But then the question comes to me, what's a great church? What is greatness? And Jesus answers every time, if you want to be great, you must be the servant of all. A great church is a servant church, isn't it? A church with maximum good deeds for people with the greatest needs. 
If I had a motto that I'd lay on you this morning, it would be good deeds for real needs in the name of Jesus. If we live by that motto, we'll be a great church because we'll be a servant church. And there will be ample reason for Elliot Park and many other people to look on and conclude from our deeds that our God deserves glory and praise. Now, to keep ourselves going in the right direction in these years ahead, I think we need to get a clearer picture of what good deeds are. What specifically is meant here? Acts 9.36, Luke tells us about a woman. Her name is Tabitha, or Dorcas, or Gazelle. And she was, it says, full of good deeds and acts of mercy. And then she got sick and died. And Peter comes to be with her. They hope something will happen. And it says, verse 39, all the widows stood beside him weeping and showing coats and garments which Dorcas made while she was with them. It seems to me that Dorcas was evidently part of a group of widows who spent their time making clothes to give to the needy. Because it says these are not just good deeds, they were acts of mercy. 1 Timothy 5.9 talks about a provision made for the widows in that church. Widows who had been like Dorcas and now have no one left to support them. I was, by the way, thinking about entitling this sermon, uh, Less Government Means More Church. But I decided to save that and talk more specifically about that later. You, you think on that. I think that's what's going to happen in the next decade or two. And I don't think that's bad at all. Um, at any rate, in, in Ephesus, there was a provision made for the widows. There, there was no Social Security, so the church took care of them. And what... Paul said was that in order for a woman to be enrolled in this group, listen to what she was supposed to characterize her in verse 10. She must be well attested for her good deeds as one who has brought up children, shown hospitality, washed the feet of the saints, relieved the afflicted and devoted herself to doing good in every way. Beautiful picture of these women there in Ephesus. Good deeds, evidently, are acts by which the needs of people are met. That's a very simple definition. Especially, according to this verse, the pressing rudimentary needs. Uh, clothing, aid for those in distress, and so on. And this is exactly the focus of Paul, again, in Titus 3.14, where it says, Let our people learn to apply themselves to good deeds in order to meet urgent or pressing or necessary needs, that they not be unfruitful. It's Colossians 1.10 is a very similar verse. When a church devotes itself to maximize its good deeds, I think it should have a very special burden to meet the needs that are most pressing. On people. That seems to be consistent with those several verses. Now, where does the time and the effort and the skill and the money come from for those kinds of good deeds, whether they're done individually or corporately as a church? Well, they come from us who are better off, clearly. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 17 and 18, As for the rich in this world, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on uncertain riches, but on God 
They are to do good and to be rich in good deeds, eager to share and generous. I think that we're coming out of an era in American church life in which it has been possible for evangelical Christians to tithe their income and then devote themselves with the other 90% financially to building the good life for themselves and all the while keep a clear conscience. I say we're coming out of that era. It was an era in which conservative evangelicals, for them, ethics meant primarily, see if this hasn't been true in your own background like mine, ethics has primarily meant the negative avoidance of sin rather than the positive pursuit of as many good deeds as you could think of. Hasn't that been the case for, for a long time in the church? Ethics, negative avoidance rather than positive pursuit of good deeds. It's an era in which well-fed, well-clothed, well-housed, well-entertained evangelicals have been able to maintain a distance and to preserve a communications blackout between themselves and the misery and distress of the cities and of many third world countries. But it's ending. Whether we want it or not, this era is over. And the main reason that it's over is simply because the world has shrunk and will continue to shrink because of worldwide media systems and very sophisticated channels of assistance so that we will simply no longer be able to convince ourselves that the urban masses and the starving Ugandans are not our neighbor, whom Jesus said to love as much as we love ourselves. Have you ever paraphrased that command, love your neighbor as you love yourself, like this? Seek the good life for others as much and as hard as you seek it for yourself. That's all it means. It's the most radical, frightening demand in the whole Bible. The era of isolation and comfort is ending for another reason. Its biblical foundations are crumbling. Two years ago at Green Bay, I actually heard on the floor of the Baptist General Conference annual meeting a man stand up and say that the resolution to develop a simple lifestyle in the conference so that we would have more resources to alleviate world hunger was an unbiblical resolution because 1 John 3.17, when, when John says, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? That means only that we should be concerned for Christian brothers. Because that's what brother means in 1 John. And therefore, we shouldn't resolve that together as a conference. The conference didn't buy that, and it's good. And those kinds of arguments are crumbling because they're wrong. Galatians 6.10 says, As we have opportunity to do good, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all men especially to those who are of the household of faith. 1 Thessalonians 5.15 says, See that none of you repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to each other and to all 
men. So clear, so simple. Children can understand that. But we manage to wiggle. Romans 12, 20. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him drink. Jesus, love your enemy. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. The era of comfortable isolation for us American evangelicals is over because its justification has collapsed and because the misery and the destitution of the world is coming too close to ignore. And as it approaches, local churches like Bethlehem, which have the Holy Spirit of God alive in them, will feel themselves drawn irresistibly to new reorientations of ministry, new kinds of life together, new sorts of lifestyles, all calculated to maximize good deeds in the name of Jesus and for the glory of our Father in heaven. And I am optimistic about Bethlehem Baptist Church because of its manifest compassion, for refugees, its manifest burden for mission, the manifest concern of many individuals to be zealous for good deeds. God willing, we will not be content with minimum church. We will become a great church, which means very simply a great servant church. Maximum good deeds for maximum needs in the name of Jesus. That's the local church that we have to be. If we're going to show the principalities and powers, God was wise in establishing this institution. And if we're going to show the world a credible witness that we just don't live the way others live. We are a peculiar people with an alternative agenda for these three score and ten. Then they might see our good deeds and give glory to our Father in heaven. You're probably wondering why we read Acts 2. Against what I said this morning, you go back this afternoon and read Acts 2 and see whether the Holy Spirit sows any seeds in your mind about what life together might look like here at Bethlehem in the years to come.